You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, it's Graham. Welcome to a classic big interview. This time, we go back to season 16, 17. This is what I had to say about it back then. We're ready for the second half of the big interview with Gianluca Vialli. In this one, we talk about when we first met after I was sent to Turin to find out the secrets of a Juventus side who had just destroyed Rangers in the Champions League. Luca takes us into a winning culture at the heart of that extraordinary era in Turin, then the move to Chelsea, where he was both player and manager. All the big characters pop up in some of his brilliant anecdotes, told with his typical articulacy, character, fun, wit. Ranieri's there, Di Canio, Lippi, Ferguson. It's part two with Luca. Enjoy. You've taken us to the leaving of Sampdoria. I can only say I remember the, the, the thrill of, of meeting you when my editor sent me over to see why Juventus could not just outplay Rangers but outmuscle them and outwork them. And We weren't used to pressing and that was one of the many emblems of that Lippi Juventus side with whether it was you and Ravanelli or Del Piero or you and Ravanelli or Padovano or Atilio, whoever it might be. And I remember going to the Stadio Comunale, the old Juventus Stadium, which has now been reworked, but you were in the Dele Alpi then playing competitively and going into the Comunale and saying to the kind press officer who took me over to Juventus, Daniele Boalia, we must name him, a good man, can I interview somebody who'd be willing to talk to me? And he said, well, listen, we'll do it after training. So I came and I watched the morning training and it was fascinating and it was muddy and it was intricate and watched and saw things that I'd never seen before. And I said, interview now, Daniele? He said, yeah, when training's finished. I just watched it finished. There was lunch, a rest, and then back for a session, which maybe finished at 7.38, double training, which people now are accustomed to. People talk about this. I don't think in Britain there was any real concept of double training or why it happened. And then this fella in this 700-pound pinstripe three-piece suit came into a little abandoned dressing room and between us, my pigeon English and you're very fluent Italian, we worked at an interview what kind of club was I seeing then? What kind of atmosphere was I seeing there? Because to me, it struck me as, as an extraordinary, industrious, intense, hard-working place that reeked of success mm. when I went to watch you. Well, I, I feel that uh, the key to be successful is the kind of culture that you create in your sport organisation. 
and football clubs are organisations where there should be a specific culture, depending on what the owners and what the people want. Juventus, the claim is that you never give up and you go on until the final whistle and beyond. And um, you must prepare in order to be able to carry this sort of claim on your shoulder. And um, therefore, you need to be humble when you play and respect your position, but you need to be, you need to do it with pride and you need to be aggressive. So that's the culture. And you need to prepare properly. And therefore, we were probably the best at preparing ourselves. You mentioned about training sessions. To wear the Juventus shirt is an honour, but it's also <laughs> something quite... It's heavy, it's very heavy. It's been a privilege for me, and during the four years I was at Juventus, I did my very best in order to make sure that I was fulfilling all the expectations, and I was deserving to be the captain. So it's, it's infectious, and um, that's what you breathe and and leave when you get to a club like, like Juventus. And um, so everybody behaves the same way. Uh, they turn up, they see uh, you know, everybody doing it, and they just do the same thing. You know, training twice a day, three times a day. I remember we had a gym. It was probably the best gym that any football club had in, in Italy. And uh, we had our own individual uh, programs. Mm-hmm. So we were sort of encouraged to do a little uh, training program before the first training session in the morning. So training session starts at 10 o'clock, and then you had somebody turning up, going to the gym at 9 o'clock, doing an hour training by themselves, and then join the normal training session. And there was like, <laughs> the mentality was as such that it was like a, a competition on who would turn up earlier. And so opening the gym and finding one of your colleagues already there was a bit disappointing. So... <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> at some point, you know, there was such a competition that I remember turning up at quarter to seven and opening the door of the gym thinking, no way, this time I'm going to be the first. And Delivia was already in there looking at me, smiling, saying, oh, I'm bad luck. And he was probably there from 6.30 in the morning. So it was that intense, that competitive. And uh, it was just fantastic. And Marcello Lippi was my messiah. He was a friend to start with. And then when he joined the club, said... I wanted to go back to Sampdoria after a couple of years Juventus and he just joined the club and he said to me, Luca, you know, I've just arrived here. I want to be successful. I need you to be on my side and I want you to stay. And, you know, when a manager speaks to you like that, <laughs> is that not to... He's selling you a dream exactly, again. Exactly, this, well, the That's exactly. Well, Mantovani, right. I don't know enough about him and it's a big loss for me as a lover of football, as a student of football. Football played the right way. And, and in that little experience I had, because we came back, what you taught us, what Ventroni taught us in our first visit, the Celtic manager told me, Byrne said, please take us back. So we sat down over a table. It was January by then, and the build-up was coming. You knew you, were, you had already drawn Real Madrid in the quarterfinals of the European Cup. And I remember in the middle of a lunch where Boalia, Ventroni, Tommy Burns and I were sitting with your Messiah. He didn't need to talk about this. And maybe everybody knew it in Italy. That when he played for Samp, it was in the days of Catanaccio, Catanaccio, pure. And he played, I don't know if you, I call it the libero, but he played in a five. A sweeper, yeah. As a sweeper, in, yeah. but in a five. And he told me that Samp told him, if you can even see the halfway line, 
Never mind. Never mind crossing yeah. it. Don't even dare. You'll be fined and yeah. dropped. Yes. The, the halfway line is for summer holidays. Yes. Uh, you can you can travel there, but it's a foreign place to you. And he told me, and maybe he was being romantic, Luca, but I love to believe. He said that he began to swear to himself, when I'm a coach, bollocks to that. This is what we're going to do. We're going to attack. Not all out attack, like maybe Osvaldo did at Spurs. But we're going to press, we're going to go high up, we're going to take this game to them all the time. Yes. That's what I saw. That's what yeah. we all saw when we watched you, right? Yeah, no, I, I would say that... He fulfilled you, his promise. Yeah, you, you summed up very much his philosophy of football as a coach. I remember him telling us before the match one thing all the time, and that was we take control of the game. We decide the pace of the game and we do what we want with it. And therefore... We felt like our duty was to really be on top of our opponents and being able to defend when we wanted and then play counter-attacking football or to put them under pressure. And so it was the perfect mentality. It made us feel in control. And um, I remember just, I would say, 99 nine of, uh, out of 100 uh, times just walking down the tunnel and, you know, you, you, when there are those uh, 30 seconds, a minute, where you wait for the opponents and the referee, and then you get ready to walk out on the pitch and you have a glance at your opponents, I remember looking at them thinking, I'm not scared. You must be scared. Mm-hmm. And that was, like, a great feeling. Mm-hmm. And, you know, feeling like I'm better than you. If I work hard enough, mm-hmm. I would beat you. Mm-hmm. You know, that is the manager's job. Once the manager managed to instill that kind of mentality in the player's mind, then you're halfway there. Was the greatest trident in that Juventus era you and Alex and Ravanelli, or was it with Italia, or was it with Padovano? For you. And Baggio. Baggio, the first season. Baggio before Alex. Yeah, Baggio oh, before. then if it's a 4 3 3 for yes. the Juventus, then which of the three to you was the most satisfying, the most powerful, the greatest? Of the of those potential front trees. Well, y- y- did you was it called the Tridente then? The Tridente, yeah. Well, then, okay, tr- yeah, very good. By the way, gracias. I don't know. I think we were always very effective because um, we had, uh, in a way, we were believer in uh, that kind of mentality that uh, Marcello Lippi wanted us. To. So we were doing it not just for the sake of it because we believed that was right, and we were really working hard for each other. We were working out for the team. We were not sort of following individual uh, um, yeah. success. We, our main priority was to make the team successful. So whether it was Baggio or Del Piero or Ravanelli, we were all trying our best to work out for the team and be effective, of course. Uh, but the team was our main priority. So we ran our socks yeah. off, as you say. He did. For the team. Well, did you call it pressing then? How did he describe that? Because this was our first real... Maybe pressing existed forever. I don't want to sound stupid. But we couldn't see it. We couldn't learn from the 50s or the 60s because there wasn't enough television coverage. But we saw you pressing. You said in the tunnel, you should be scared of me because we're going to... The defenders, it must have been a fucking nightmare playing against you. Because if you tried to bring the ball out or make a pass, you were on them and on them and on them. And then when you won the ball, you all did things quickly and efficiently with the ball. Did did Lippi call it pressing? How did you describe it? Uh, How did you work on well, it? Well, technically, what, you know, managers tend to say that um, it's uh, pressing. Pressure is when a player does it individually. Mm-hmm. Pressing is when a number of players 
do it all together, which becomes even more effective. Otherwise, you might run the risk of running around like a lunatic and you never get the ball. But when you do it at the right time, in the right place on the pitch, uh, all together, it becomes tremendously effective. And I think that also what a manager strives for is to find the right balance uh, with your side so that you need to convince the strikers and the attackers to help the rest of the team to defend, and then you need to convince the defenders, mm-hmm. when you get the ball, to be the first attacker. Mm-hmm. So if defenders are prepared to do it for the strikers and the strikers are prepared to do the opposite work for the defenders, then you are very close to having a very successful side. Because sometimes defenders just want, don't want to concede, but when they get the ball they don't want to know, so they just kick it forward, and there's not enough quality for the strikers to make those balls count. And the other way around, strikers finish the action, the offensive action, you know, they turn their back to the, the play and they don't help the defenders. And then you become a bit more vulnerable. So Lippi's ability of convincing us that we had to work for each other with the ball and without the ball made us a very balanced team in both phases. And um, the only way you can play with three strikers, I think, unless you have Suarez, Messi and Neymar, so play with three strikers without affecting the balance of the side mm-hmm. is if the three strikers work extremely hard mm-hmm. and they are the first defenders when the opponents have the ball, which is what we did. We took pride in getting and winning the ball back from the defenders and uh, we wanted to run more than the defenders. We wanted to make it physical as well as mental and we came on top most of the time. Because then if the first wave of pressing is successful, it'll be like a, a pinball. Because you'll win it, the ball will come away, the midfield will pick it up, they must be positionally clever behind you, and then immediately you've won it and the ball's gone free. In three, four seconds, if you've won it well enough and, the, and your midfield is in the right position, you're going to be giving it back and asked to do something clever with it. Yes. So who, who were the three behind you? We had um, Antonio Conte, Didier Deschamps, and Paolo Sosa. <laughs> So, you know, one is managing Chelsea, Deschamps is managing France, Paulo Sosa will manage Portugal one day, and he's now managing Fiorentina, you know, very well. So, three guys with brain, uh, heart, and legs, and football skills. And therefore, you know, we were, in a way, very well guided, because they were behind us. So, go, go, go. Stay, stay, stay. You're always talking? Absolutely. It's, yeah, it's... it's, it's Who talked the communication most? Communication Who would talk the most to you? I would say probably no one actually dare speaking to me, because, you know, I was very... <laughs> <laughs> no, I was joking. Uh, no, I, I would say all of them, all of them, in their own way. Obviously, Antonio was more... It was Italian, so... Yeah. But everybody had a duty, and the duty was to communicate. It wasn't, you know, you couldn't afford being shy or timid. Everybody had to, you know, help each other and, and speak and shout. It gives you a second brain. Yeah, exactly. Behind or you. don't go. When you are ready to yeah. go, if the team is not ready, they would just shout, don't go, and you just wait. And then when you're all ready, you all go together. And then you win the ball back. And as you said, yeah, you need to know what to do once you win the ball back. Do I keep it? Do I switch to the other side? Or shall I just take it? Because I think that... A team is at its most vulnerable when they have the ball. <laughs> so the, the fullbacks sort of open up, they go forward. You breathe. You know, yeah, you breathe. Open. Everybody's in a position where they want to build the play. You win it back, they're not ready, and then you find the space and the right gaps to actually hurt them and score a goal. We knew that, 
and we were very smart in understanding that it was important what we did with the ball, but it was also, if not even more important, what to do when the others had the ball and prepare ourselves to find those gaps and those spaces. Paint me a picture, please, because this is a strange memory, so don't take the lippy phrase the wrong way, because I think it was meant in kind of admiration and confusion, but we, we were sitting... One of the training days we were allowed when Tommy Burns comes, it's typical Turin in winter. It's grey, it's clammy, it's cold, the, the moisture is inside your bones. Foggy. You, you guys are working quite... It was very foggy. The local journalist from um, Tuto, I think Sport. it was Tuto, wrote when they, there was a Scot there, they interviewed me and they started talking about, and the ghost of Macbeth came from Scotland out of the grey fog or in the common alley, and I thought, I like it. I like it. <laughs> but we were sitting there and... Um, we watched Paulo Sosa, so he had about 17 different kinds of clothes on. Two or three hats, four or five scarves, gloves, six or seven cagoules, and he was kind of walking around. So Tommy Burns asked Lippy over lunch, what's with Sosa? And Lippy goes, the laziest man I've ever seen in training, never scores a goal. Then in the games, he does everything right. He's brilliant. He's a leader. He's a guider. And he just painted this really strange picture. Now, for a coach, for a guy like you who works differently every day, do you recognise that description? And how, did you ever kind of look around and go, are you ever going to do any work on a daily basis? <laughs> just explain a little bit more because Flippy's well, not here now. First of all, Paolo is a very clever guy. When he first signed for Juventus, we were put in the same bedroom went away um, on sort of for matches and also he ended up living in the same building next door to my apartment in Turin so we were very good friends and uh, so I couldn't really get too annoyed with Paolo's attitude but I can see what you're saying he was trying to manage himself he didn't have the structure in my opinion to cope with the amount of physical work that we were doing his knees were very inflamed the patella tendons, because we were doing a lot of um, weightlifting, a lot of bouncing, so going through up, uh, hurdles. Over, over the hurdles, yeah. The surfaces sometimes were too hard, so he was really struggling, and I was struggling as well, but probably Paolo was in more pain. So he really had to deal with this and try to handle these problems, managing himself during mm-hmm. the week mm-hmm. in order to be able to then perform on a match day. Obviously, it was a bit annoying from a manager's point of view because you want all the players to work hard at the same, same, level. same level. But Paolo was forgiven because he was such a great player yeah. on, a, on match days and because he had physical problems. One of the but, things... Sorry, um, it takes a very mature group of people and a team to... To understand, understand and to accommodate. Yeah. And that's why I asked. Yes. Yeah. I was interested, because this is Lippi, your messiah, one of the great coaches, telling us even... He was going, oh, God, but here's the reason I... Even yeah. then he was saying, here's the reason that we do it. And I just wondered, I didn't know he was your friend and neighbour at the time. Before we leave Juventus, and, and we do... I want to be careful how I talk about this, but a phrase that was used to me over and over again when I made that first visit to the Comunale, really try and learn about Juve properly, was that there wasn't just a desire to win the European Cup. There was a desire to win the European Cup to compensate for the memory of of Heysel. That phrase was used to me by everybody I met there. It's not just we must win it this season and you knew, or eventually you knew we were leaving. So you had 92 to erase... Maybe just in your words, explain, am I right that that was a feeling that Juventus felt it needed to win in a trophy without bloodshed or, or that mm. the memory of Heysel might be somehow 
uh, ameliorated if, if, if you won the trophy again? Well, this is what we felt because this is what the fans were, in a way, passing on to us. Their mood, their feelings, their view about the only Champions League the club ever had, had, had won before. <sighs> Obviously, there was very little to celebrate about. And it was actually not a very good um, memory. It was a really bad memory. It was a tragedy. It was just, uh, so they really wanted a proper Champions League trophy, mm-hmm. you know, to, uh, with good memories, with good... Uplifting. So, uh, yeah, uplifting. So, obviously, I wanted that too, <laughs> for my own reasons. And therefore, we were extremely motivated to, to win it for ourselves, but also to win it for the fans to give them something, finally, something to celebrate about with no bad feelings about it. You beat Real Madrid, you beat yes. Nantes in an incredibly tough away. Nantes, the side that people will forget, I'm sure. What a great side they were. Yes. With Loco, I think, and Pedro, and, and just super, super team. And the, I think you scored in the return leg, or the, the leg in France, but they were a, a tough rival. Then you beat... Van Hal's very talented, very entertaining Ajax side. If you can pick an anecdote or a memory of the, the three games that take you to the final, beating Real Madrid, beating Nantes, and then beating uh, Ajax on penalties, what stays with you now? What gives you the shiver down your spine? Well, I, I, I can think of two things. Uh, first of all, just before we played Real Madrid in the second leg of the quarterfinal, after losing 1-0 at the Bernabeu, we were in, um, in the hotel. We spent five days in the hotel prior to the match because Marcello thought that the we were not 100% concentrated. Wow. Oh, I, I think it was just an excuse. I thought maybe it was just looking for an excuse to get us together and you know spend five, five days focusing on what was a very important match, obviously. And I remember speaking to the managing director of Juventus in my hotel room, I think a couple of days before the match. Uh, my contract was going to run out at the end of the season and didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. I thought I wanted to lead Juventus and come to the Premiership, but obviously it would be nice if you went to set off for me a, <laughs> a new contract. Mm. Anyway, he said to me, look, we want to keep you, all right? So don't worry, and um, we are prepared to offer you a fifth of what you're earning right now, which was a very nice way to say to me. Ciao. <laughs> yeah, ciao. At least he didn't do it before a very important match. <laughs> exactly. So I remember actually crying yeah. after the match, and it was not joy, it was more like relief. And yeah. uh, because that's how you perceive the wins in Italy. They're not joys, they're reliefs because you know, wow, <laughs> this is gone. Anyway, I was stressed out, I was angry, mm. but I was super motivated to show them and prove them that I was, would been, been a big mistake to let me go. And we beat Real Madrid 2 0 and we went through to the quarter semi final. And then I remember the five days we spent in Rome before the final. And it was the most difficult match for me to prepare from a mental point of view because I knew it was going to be the last one with Juventus, the second Champions League final, probably my final chance because at that time, Champions League was very special. In order to win it, it took you two years to win it. You had to win the prem- uh, your t- uh, local title first and then win the championship. There was no second or third or fourth place like now and you're playing the Champions League. So it was really difficult. It was one-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Mm-hmm. So I, I knew it was going to be the last one. I knew I'd lost it with Sampdoria before. I couldn't have bear losing it again. So it was very difficult. These were nerves or emotion? Nerves. or Everything no. together, yeah. 
And then I had cramps during the match as well, which I never had. Which comes from t- exactly. mental tension. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Because I basically started the match in Rome feeling that I'd already played three matches. So I was really mentally and physically difficult. You win it. Eventually. <laughs> on penalties? On penalties. You didn't take one, which was a very good idea, if you're cramps. No, I didn't take one, even though we only took four, and nobody knows who was the fifth one. Ah, <laughs> I, I accept my mistake. But the fifth one was actually the Piero. Ah. It would have been the fifth one. I would have been the sixth one, which most of the time is the most difficult. Very high pressure. <laughs> no, but I remember Marcello Lippi, after the match, I was lying on the floor, I was incredibly tired, and he asked me whether I want to take the penalty. And I said, look, Marcello, if you need me to take it, I will. But if you find five crazy guys that want to take it, then I'll sort of, I'll watch them, you know, happily take those penalties. And why did I do that? I could have been selfish and say, okay, I just need this adrenaline rush when you take a penalty, whether you miss it or you score it. It's something that you will remember for the rest of your life. You know, those final few metres when you've got the goalkeeper, the fence. And... But the last two penalties I'd taken in Rome, one with the national team during the World Cup okay, in 1990, yeah. I missed, I hit the post. Another one, I brought my left foot taking a penalty versus Rome. Oh, I so that. I also wasn't probably in the right frame of mind because I was feeling so much pressure. I think I, I would have killed myself if I'd taken a penalty, missed it, and if we had lost the Champions League final. So I said to Michelle, if you need me, I will. But otherwise, just, you know... It's a perfect answer because it can be good and tactical to say no as well as to say yes. Yeah, people feel like you are not accepting responsibility. I think it's about what is good for the team. That's the way I want to say it. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's just an easy it. way to explain it. I love it, it and respect it. I didn't it. have the balls. No, 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 no. I no. had the balls because... You, you, you've begun to make a difference between an Italian mentality and a British mentality because we are troops. We're soldiers. <laughs> so duty calls, we answer whether it's the right thing to do or not. To disengage the brain, march forwards. Yes. Different for the Italian... You, we both agree without going into it. The Italian mentality is much yeah. different to this. Absolutely. We want you to show us first how to do it, and then we do it. Well. <laughs> these, this is a section where... The, these are maybe lighter and quicker. Some of the good questions sent in yeah. for you. The questions are going to end with a club in Glasgow. But at first, we won't. This is a good one from Simon Gold. Coming from a culture that values almost above all else, creativity, artistry, style, and natural talent, a certain way of doing things from art to food to football. It's deeply entrenched, he says, in beautiful simplicity. How do you feel about the aggressive nature of the corporate game in football? And are there any elements of the 80s and 90s game that you'd like to see resurrected, brought back to modern football? I think that's an interesting wish I was answering it, but... Do you want to give it a go first? No, no I, I no. don't know your country well enough. I didn't understand... Let's see, he's, first he's first saying yeah. that Italy yeah. lives for creativity, beauty, yes. in art, in food, in architecture, in philosophy. And yet, we exist in, in a game now we all still love, which is corporate and maybe soulless. And also, I think he's referring to how an artist Catanaccio come from a country that values such beauty and free spirits and elegance and other... You can see that there's a dichotomy. You can see that there's a slight contradiction. Uh, Well, first of all, let me make a comparison between the way we play football in our country and the way you guys play football in this country. And I think that that reflects our culture, our mentality. British people have always been going out, 
conquering the rest of the world. You've got very much in sort of brave mentality. We want to spread our culture around the world, so we are conquerors. We go out and we fight, and we fight openly, and we are brave, we are courageous, but we are strong, and eventually we will prevail. Well, we are completely different. Our last empire ended uh, 2,000 years ago, <laughs> and from that moment on, we've always been conquered by other empires. And we had to defend ourselves. We had to create that siege mentality where we had to defend our territory. That's why when you play, you play open football, brave football, courageous. You go out to be better than your opponents. What we do when we play football, we go out and we defend our territory and we explore our weaknesses, your weaknesses. And yeah. when you actually show us a gap, then we, we counter, we hit you, and then we retrieve again. And this is very much as happened in Italy in the last 500 years. So we had defended our territory from you know, the Arabs, the English, the Germans, the Austrians, uh, <laughs> the Turkish, everybody. And uh, we have learned how to be very good at doing what we do, uh, which is defending and counter-attacking. So I think that that is the main difference. And overall, I wish, yes, Italian football is marvellous. I wish you know, people work harder to make it being perceived as a clean game. I think that's a beautiful answer, and we're very lucky. A, a quick thought on Claudio's achievements at Leicester and joy? Yeah, joy, pride, I, I would say. I think even though Claudio took my place at Chelsea in 2001 when I was um, sacked, I think he's now a better manager than he was back then because um, I think he's realised what uh, it takes to be successful in the Premiership. And you've got to adjust your Italian mentality to what is needed in this country. For example, when he first came to Chelsea, I thought it was very unpredictable mm -hmm. in the way it was um, sort of uh, picking the team, the rotation system. Inconsistent in his decision-making. Yes, it was, it was very Italian. It was what we are used to, but not what the English players and the English fans and the press were used to. And I think it was probably a bit too much because ended up confusing the place a little bit. Anyway, he didn't win trophies when he was at Chelsea for four years and then he went back to Italy. So he's always been very good, but probably not considered good enough to end up with a big, big trophies in, in his cabinet. Because, you know, managers might say, look, I'm building foundation for a better future and so on. But football is about also no. winning trophies. And then I think the last 10 years... Uh, He's become a better manager, more experienced. He's learned a few things in Italy and in Greece and everywhere he's been. And finally now he's found the perfect place, which is Leicester. Not a lot of expectations, not a lot of pressure, but the possibility to really make a huge difference. And don't get me wrong, Leicester proved last year to be already a very good side mm -hmm. when they won seven of the last nine mm -hmm. matches, which is Champions League pace, if you like. But Claudio was clever because he came in, he didn't want to revolutionise something that was working quite well. He just added some little bits and pieces here and then, and he brought the best out of the players. And the tactic was put on. Best team, in my opinion, defensive-wise, in possibly in Europe. You, you'd recognise their work ethic Yeah, what, they, they, from Juventus days. Yes, they have incredible team spirit. They work as a unit. There's some sort of brotherhood between the players that you can spot on straight away. But I think the main reason, main tactical reason is that nobody in the Premiership 
seems to be able to defend any longer. Hmm. Defensive organisation is so poor. Mm-hmm. And Leicester stood out as a great defensive side. I mean, they defend so well. And they play the most effective, spectacular counter-attacking football in, in Europe, I think. So that's a great combination. And the fact that they've done it consistently, and I think consistency is the quality of champions. So in my opinion, they deserve to win it. And that shows you that nothing is impossible in football. And it's just great advertisement for the best football product in the world, which is the Premiership. Football product is a good phrase. <laughs> Even though I live in Spain, I, I shan't challenge. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Gindy Singh says, Luca, were you treated differently at first, particularly at Cremonese, because you come from a background of, of a background which isn't typical to football? In the dressing room, did, did, were you treated differently? Did anybody know, is Gindy Singh's question. First of all, I have to say that in, in Italy, football is not perceived as a working class game. It's a game for everybody. You can be the son of a lawyer, the son of a very wealthy guy, but you go to the oratory, 
and you start kicking the ball around and you enter your first football team and you progress from that on. That's very different yeah, from here. Yeah, it's very different. It's like here you've got rugby. It's the, I was going to say it's the absence or, yeah. of rugby in those days. Now Italy's strong, but I understand. And therefore, I never felt any problem in sitting in the dressing room with players that had came from a different background, maybe were, they were not wealthy or anything, because that's the beauty of football. It's very democratic. You know, it's like when you go in a battle, it doesn't matter your, about your background, it's all about your courage, your attitude, your spirit. And therefore, I thought that, yes, perhaps somebody looking at me thinking, I want to see whether you behave properly because of, you know, your upbringing and your background. I, I think that it's the moment they saw me in training, they thought, it's one of us. We are all the same. We're all together. We're in here all together. Gindy, you couldn't ask for a better answer than that. Okay, now, this question from Lorenzo, Amor- Lorenzo Amoruso. <laughs> really? And David McFadden and Des Roach and Robert Fulton and Scott Meekin and Kenny Martin. So by now, listening to some of the names, you should know where we're going. They want to know, now I know, but they want to know, were you really close to signing for Rangers or Celtic or was it just talk in the media? I was really close because um, when I knew I was going to leave Juventus, um, I had an agent that was looking around on my behalf because I didn't want to get distracted. My target, my objective was to win the Champions League. So I wanted to be focused and I wanted someone else. And that was the first time I had an agent. Anyway, it looked as if uh, Arsenal didn't want to sign me because they wanted a British sort of side. Uh, I don't remember the name of the manager. Uh, David Platt was there playing. It was an English manager, I think. Or Arsene yeah. Wenger? No, no. When did Wenger no, come? No, Wenger came in '96. So, so Bruce Rea. Exactly. Then I, you know, someone spoke to Chelsea, and Glenn Hoddle was the manager. Mark Hughes was already in the side. He was 32, and so they wanted, yes, a new striker, but they wanted someone to play with Mark Hughes and younger. Mm-hmm. Don't think we spoke to Tottenham, but uh, anyway. It looked as if nobody, you know, no London clubs wanted me. So Glasgow became an option because obviously, you know, Champions League, big club in Scotland, Glasgow, Edinburgh, very nice places to live. And so I met Walter Smith and David, David Murray, Barry, yeah. the owner. Yeah. We met in Turin and um, we had a long chat about football and the way that Walter wanted the team to play and what would have been my role inside and and we started discussing about money, negotiating and then uh, Glenn Hoddle went from being the Chelsea manager to manage the national team so Ruth Hooley took over and he didn't say like Glenn Hoddle so he didn't have a problem in me and Sparky playing together up front even though we were both 32 so he called me up and he said would you like to join me at Chelsea and for me that was my you know first option so I said yes and then we spoke to Glasgow Rangers and I explained the situation and they understood and uh, uh, because we had not shaken hands yet by then so I left Turin and I joined Chelsea. There's a famous story about an Edinburgh hotel with a young Northern Irish night waiter who gets a call to bring up a bottle of champagne and, and a pizza to a room and he opens the door and he walks in and he sees George Best there. The bed is covered in the hundreds of pound notes that he's won at the casino. There's a Miss World in his bed. The young Northern Ireland waiter is serving him champagne and he looks down at his idol and says, 
George, where did it all go wrong? So, look at where this could have been. You could have been sitting today in Glasgow after a wonderful career with Rangers in the rain instead of here in London, this beautiful house. That you made the right decision, didn't you? Is what I'm saying. Yeah, it, I don't know. I, I was yes. very happy at Chelsea. But when the road comes and you have two paths, in all honesty, when that, that call from Rudy, which must have been a surprise to you, because... It's what I wanted. It's what I wanted, so for me, it was... But he, you and he had never been so close in Italy. The phone call would have been a surprise, or were you friends, or...? No, well, we knew each other. We had been on holiday together by chance once and uh, we had played against each other many many times in Italy I think he liked me as a player and he thought that being an Italian I could have helped him to in a way transform the club Mm -hmm. into a club with uh, sort of a European structure European organisation and European mentality or at least make it the best possible combination between the British mentality and the continental mentality so I remember I was in Alessandria with my masseur. I got the phone call and uh, I was obviously extremely happy because... But I'm not sure whether that was the right decision or not. It was what I wanted, so it was good for me. What what Chelsea did you find? Well, I was kind of shocked when I first arrived because... uh, People won't know why. People won't understand why. Training facilities compared to what we had in Italy and the fact that we had to train and leave the training ground by 1 o'clock because at 1.30 we had university students coming in and occupying our facilities and we couldn't train twice a day. We had two days off a week, which was (laughs) incredible from my point of view. And, you know, even looking at some of the British players under the shower and seeing them quite unfit, if you know what I mean, with a few pounds to lose <laughs> around their waists. So it was totally different. No need to spend the night before in a hotel, the night before the match in a hotel. I mean, with the press, you know, speaking to the press once a month, maybe, if not less. The fans being extremely happy no matter what, as long as you gave very best. Results were important, but efforts was more important. So it was, it was a shock for me. But I had to adapt and uh, I had to help the club to make changes and to become a better club, which is what I tried to do. What are your happiest memories of the time there? First as a player, well, because very quickly you adapted and learned to love the British way of life while still pulling the club, just as you promised to Hulip before you took over. You pulled standards, you showed your work ethic, you brought things from everything you'd done at SAMP and you have a what were the things, either culturally or in sporting terms or a match, that made you happy about that choice, about being there? Well, initially, I've got to say that London made me happy, but um, from a footballing point of view, I wasn't entirely happy. I wasn't 100% happy. Root signed Gianfranco Zola as well, uh, later on with the idea to play the three of us up front with Sparky and myself and Gianfranco behind us, but then uh, it was quite obvious that um, we couldn't handle that. The team was not built in a way to support three strikers. So he had to make a decision and he rightly decided to go back to 4-4-2. And of course Gianfranco and Sparky were playing ever so well together. So I was sitting on the bench most of the time. My relationship with the manager deteriorated and then they called me a jinx and uh, because every time... I, I didn't know playing, that. They were saying, look, every time I play Viali we are losing. So, <laughs> so for me that was quite... 
extremely annoying. And so there was a total breakdown in our relationship. And therefore, I thought about leaving at some stage. I wanted to go and, and play football because I was still very hungry. I wanted to play football. And I wanted to work with somebody that um, had trust in me, confident in me. Yeah. And uh, that wasn't the case with Roots. W- so. Was this the time when Celtic became an option? Yes, Celtic became an option. Uh, Crystal Palace as well. Uh-huh. Sort of somebody was talking to with a few clubs. And then, all of a sudden, Chelsea made a decision to fire Rood, the manager, and asked me to become player manager. So, obviously, uh, everything changed almost overnight. Part of the decision, irrespective of what Colin Hutchinson and Ken Bates have said about Rood's contract negotiations and net and gross and all this kind of nonsense, part of the decision must have been we don't want to lose Luca. Mm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Because initially, uh, they spoke to me about, they wanted me to think about becoming player manager at the end of the season. Mm-hmm. Probably they thought it was time to make a change or maybe they were quite uh, inspired by professionalism, even though I was going through a difficult situation with the manager. So they thought maybe he would be a good guy to lead the team. But then uh, I think there was a breakdown in the negotiations with Ruud. So they wanted me to take over, you know, Monday. Uh, like uh, this. So three days later, yes. And um, and I spoke to Lippi about that, and they said, uh, don't worry, just you'll be absolutely fine, just relax. And then I spent three days looking. When, when they said to me, OK, you're going to have the job, you're going to start on Monday, I spent three days thinking about how I wanted the team to train, to play, and the organisation, and then I remember Lippi calling me on a Sunday night and said to me, what are you doing? I said, I'm, you know, I've been working for the last 48 hours non-stop on training sessions. I said, stop, hang on, hang on, this is not what you need to do. First of all, you need to understand inside yourself what you believe in, what's your philosophy, what is your personality, okay? You need to, you need to find out stuff about yourself. What are your principles? What are the things that you believe in? Mm-hmm. What is your, write your own personal constitution, this is what he told me, and then the rest will follow. And he was absolutely right. I think that most of the time we spend too long thinking about these little details and we forget about the main picture. And the main picture should be, what do you believe in? Once you know what you believe in, it's much easier to then inspire the rest of the players, you know, your players to, to follow you. And easier to take the medium and small decisions because you have a Bible, you have a guiding principle. You know, whenever there is a decision to be made, what it is that you believe in, and then it's easier to make a decision. I think that leadership is about transmitting your character. And your character is made of what are the principles that you believe in. So you need to find out, <laughs> what, do you, what do I believe in? And that's how you build your character. And when you've got uh, your own character, which is developed, and you know what is right, what is wrong in your opinion, then it's much easier to then pass it on to the players, which is what leadership is all about, in my see, opinion. What I think you're highlighting, now, what I imagine when I see people, at least, is that football, just like modern life as well, doesn't allow you a lot of time to stop and think and, and yes. go away and look and assimilate and let lessons brew a little bit and then decide your personality, your, your philosophy, or to be aware of what you're saying, because we do all the time rather than think, I guess. Is, is that why Lippy's advice was valuable? Because you've been so committed also. We don't stop to think. We think every minute, but we never sum it up or assimilate and let it sink in, I guess. Yeah, no, I, I, be, I strongly believe that uh, 
you know, if you're the leader of uh, a team or whether it is in football or anything else, you need to know about yourself first and foremost. And then you can find out about the people working with you and then you can inspire them. And I think that you've got to always have in mind your bigger picture. That's the journey. I want to go from here to there. Uh, this is how I'm going to do it. That's the strategy. And then tactic is different. The tactic is how you overtake those little hurdles that might present themselves over this yeah. long journey, which is the strategy. And I think that if you have the strategy and you don't know your tactic, mm-hmm. then it might take you longer to win. Mm-hmm. But if you only know your tactic yeah. and you don't know your strategy, that's what they say is the sound that you hear before you get absolutely smashed. Mm-hmm. So I always share that with young managers and I say, look, I know 442, this and that are very important. But first of all, what do you believe in on the pitch and off the pitch? And make sure that everybody understands what you believe in. Did I see something of what you decided you believed in in the second game against Vicenza? When it was powerful, the dressing room atmosphere, whatever you achieved there, they came out also and you'd lost in Italy. But it was front foot, it was daring, it was really exciting to watch. I'm guessing, maybe I'm wrong, but I thought I saw a microcosm of what you decided your philosophy, your belief system was. Well, my philosophy is very simple. I want to create a culture where you play with um, humility, where you play with pride, and where you play with aggression, controlled aggression, and where you never give up, whatsoever. You know, it doesn't matter what happens on the pitch. And you prepare yourself in order to be able to do all those things. So you've got to work really hard during the week. And that was my philosophy. And obviously, in that match, we played with humility. We played with pride. We never gave up, even though we went one goal down after 10 minutes. Two overall. We had to score three. And uh, we tried until the very end. And uh, so that that was the way we tried to play. Unfortunately, something really important to me that... uh, define is what sort of separates uh, good players from champions is and I mentioned that before consistency continuity if you do that once and then you forget following week and then you do it twice and then you forget then in my opinion you are not good <laughs> so you know to do everything with everything I've mentioned with, with consistency was also one of my main point in my overall strategy. Stephen Brammer asked a couple of questions. Were there surprises when you were Chelsea manager? Did we ever nearly see Di Canio as a Chelsea player? Did we ever nearly see Maradona as a Chelsea player? No, but Di Canio, yes. We had a conversation both when I was at Chelsea and Attilio Lombardo as well. Uh, That was just before I was fired. I wanted um, a player like Paolo or like Attilio on the flank. Yes. So And then at Watford as well, I had a conversation with Paolo Di Canio but I didn't manage to sign them because they kicked me out before I was capable. After winning several trophies, including a European trophy against a future World Cup winning manager. (laughs) Well, it was kind of a shock for me. I remember I was at the training ground. We were five games into the season. We had uh, lost at Bradford, I think, and then a couple of draws at Villa and Newcastle, a draw with Arsenal, I think the win with West Ham, I don't remember. Anyway, we're not top of the league, but I thought that... Having just won the FA Cup at the end of the previous season. With Manchester United like a month before. And therefore they said to me, my assistant manager said to me, look, they want to see you at 3.30 this afternoon back in the office at Stamford Bridge. 
So I finished my training session and I thought, oh my God, they want to talk to me about renewing my contract, which would have expired at the end of the season. And I was a bit annoyed because I thought it wasn't the right time for me to sit down with them because we were on top of the league yet. So I wouldn't have had the power mm-hmm. to negotiate, yes, a better contract from a financial point of view, but mainly to say, look, I want to improve the organization. I want to improve the training facilities. And I wanted to be that guy with enough power to demand that kind of uh, improvement. So I remember driving back to Stamford Bridge in my lovely car and thinking about how to deal with the situation. I was thinking, let them talk first, and then mm. you just say your bit, and, and then a bit of negotiation, then perhaps you say, okay, let's see each other <laughs> next week and let's carry on discussions. So I, I, I went to the office and I went into the boardroom, and it was Ken Bates and Colin Hutchinson, the chairman at that time and the managing director. And Ken Bates said to me, look, um, we think you've done a marvellous job. And I'm thinking, thank you very much. And they said, but we have decided to make a change. So we want to, we, th- we thought about releasing you. And then Colin, I was just bloody shocked. Honestly, it was stunned. And Colin actually said to me, Luca, you are the one that told me last year that after a few years working with the same group of players, you either change the manager or you change 25 players. And we thought, we cannot change 25 players, so we decided to change you. And I just looked at him, and I said to him, uh, Colin, I can't believe it. I told you about 1,000 things in the last four years, and you never listened to one of them. And the only (laughs) bloody thing that you remember that I told you is this one. And then I just, you know, sat back, and then I left, and I went back home, my wife, was my girlfriend at that time and she was away working and my PA was there and I remember sort of crying and she hugged me and it was quite embarrassing <laughs> but the first time that happens to you it's a total shock and you start doubting about yourself and you think you're not good enough to do the job but then my advice is to talk to people that has been in that situation before mm-hmm. they can tell you that you know, to start doubting about yourself is totally wrong but you need to ask yourself the hard questions. What did I do wrong? Mm-hmm. Could I have done things differently? And you find the courage to find the right answers. And if you find the right answers, then you will be a better manager the next time you are given the opportunity to manage a football team. And so I, I did that. And I felt that after being sacked the first time, I was a complete manager. You, you need that. It's like, it's like a tattoo on your skin. You, you, you get that. And you know you're now a better manager. It's a traumatic but don't, feeling. But don't hide from the trauma. Exactly. By saying I did everything right there all wrong, you go back and you pick out use even it. a small thing. Use it to your advantage. Or take up kickboxing. Exactly. I remember you were so year. angry. <laughs> yeah. Am I right? Yes, yes. You kicked hell out of something yeah, down yeah, in your garage. Yeah, sure. If that I, was my way to keep myself fit, but also to release. Because after 25 years in football, and they take that away from you. And therefore, you need to find a way to release your energy, your aggression, your, your emotions. The fury. I'll never let you go, but I want to close on two things, because you have a life. Yes. Better than mine. <laughs> well, I mean. But um, if anybody's enjoyed the depth and the intelligence of the way that Luca talks about football, then they must find and read his book, uh, with which Gabriel Marcotti collaborated, yes, helped yes. Uh, on the Italian job. It, it's, it's deep, it's interesting, it's valuable today. It's different. Buy it, read it. It's not, the normal, it's not an autobiography, which it's, is what we it's fascinating. didn't want to do. It's yeah. fascinating and it's in depth. And, it, and it's a great, great read. 
when you were researching that, Alex Ferguson gave you time. Absolutely. There's maybe nothing new to be said about Alex Ferguson, but I believe he's, he, as a person, as a man manager, as an individual, as a psychologist, he, he matches the people we've talked about so far in, in Boscov and Lippi, or at least he's from that great echelon of, of brilliant man managers. What, what do you say about him? What, well, how would you I, describe him? It was an inspiration uh, to see him achieving what he did with uh, Manchester United year after year. Truly remarkable. I mean, it was fantastic. And just from speaking to him for a few hours over breakfast, he said, look, I've got probably an hour or so. And then we ended up talking for four hours. And it was great because... Uh, <laughs> ah. because uh, no, because uh, it, was, um, it was really willing to share his immense knowledge of the beautiful game and the way you handle footballers. And, um, you know, two things that might, you know, stood out at that time. The first thing is that um, he, he taught me that uh, as a young manager, you think that if you work 24-7, you're doing the right thing. And if you have a spare minute, you need, just need to watch another videotape of opposite team that you're going to play, or you can think about a new training session. And he said to me, Luca, that's wrong. You need to take time to switch off, recharge your batteries, uh, unwind, if you like. Take something up, play golf, singing lessons, mm. learn how to play piano. Piano for him. Uh, yeah, because then you will be able to go back to the training ground and be fresh enough to be able to analyse, because being a football manager is all about analysing and then correcting everything that is not working. So that's something that I will always remember, and, um, and I won't make the same mistake again of being too intense. It's got to be balanced with some... Do you think that happened? I will make it happen if I, if I ever get... Is that part of what happened? You said I won't make that mistake again. Yes. So... Yeah, before I was... I, I thought the more time I dedicate to, to this job, the better. Now I realise that you need to dedicate time, but it's got to be quality time. It's got to be the right time. Perfect. So, and the second thing is about handling the players, managing the players. And he said mm. to me, look, what we need is we want the players' trust and we want the, player, the players to believe in what we do and, and then our job becomes much easier. But he said to me, you cannot demand that unless you first give them your trust and your confidence. So it's actually the other way around. Mm -hmm. And you need to believe that your players are just fantastic and you need to sincerely believe that. Mm -hmm. And you believe in them, you've got confidence in them, you trust them, and then they will end up reciprocating those feelings. But it's not the other way around. You can't expect them to trust you just because you're good-looking or because you speak, uh, you know, <laughs> you speak well. Or, or play the piano well. Yeah. The, the way to finish is that I think Chelsea's still in your heart. Who do you think is getting more out of the deal. Antonio Conte, coming to Chelsea, experiencing the Premier League, as you did, changing, learning, or Chelsea, a club that still seems to have Colin Hutchinson's change, turmoil, look, seek, new guy, whatever. Who's going to get more? I think it's a perfect match. I honestly think that uh, Chelsea is the perfect club for Antonio Conte to try something new, a new experience in a kind of uh, football world that I'm sure he will end up loving, absolutely loving. And Chelsea has won the title, but this season has been a bad season. Mm -hmm. So as a manager, you know this is the right time to come in. Yeah. 
little expectation, a lot of uh, work to be dedicated to rebuild the, the, the team. And he did it with Juventus a few years back, and I'm sure that he will be thrilled to be able to be in the same situation with Chelsea. Also, the Chelsea players have been working with managers of similar style, so it won't be a, a problem in, in trying to apply his philosophy okay. to the Chelsea players. And Chelsea need a leader like Antonio. You know, they've been very good with the likes of Mourinho and Ancelotti, and I think probably Antonio Conte is in between. Uh, with you know, in terms of style and personality, and uh, I'm sure that they will uh, they will enjoy working together to try to make Chelsea again uh, the biggest club in the UK. Well, my desire is that one day that when you are managing again, that that's you. Oh, I think you deserve maybe, another maybe, chance. Maybe at running a football club, owning running, running a football yeah. club. I'm, I'm starting to, you know, if I ever decide to make a comeback in football, to be more able to be a football director, you know, running a football club on mm-hmm. behalf of the, or together with the owner, mm-hmm. and be the one that chooses and fires the managers. <laughs> because but you would also draw, I mean, that mirrors the way that the relationship with Amoruso is set up in yes. Football Nightmares, but have you found something about yourself that says maybe that's more? Yeah, yeah, I think, I think now I'm in a position where I can do a job which is slightly wider in terms of uh, your tasks, basically. Yeah. And therefore, I think I, I want to believe that this is what I will do next at some stage. Football World misses you. Um, this has been a joy for us, an absolute joy. You will see when people listen to you, you, you do this all the time, but you're giving special feelings, special anecdotes, special explanations about the game we love to people who are open to it, hungry for it. Thank so, I mean, it, for us, it's been a great, great privilege. Thank you, Graham. I just want to finish saying that uh, I am in a great place right now with my mm. life. I'm married. I've got two beautiful daughters. I work for Sky Italia, which means I get to live in London and I commute once a week so I can get the best of both countries. And um, more importantly, among other things that I do for Sky Italia, I get paid to watch football matches, which is probably the best <laughs> job in the world. And I do it with pride, and I know that in Italy to talk about football is quite a delicate issue, but we have a mission to try to re-educate the Italian fans in a different way to, you know... You're a very consistent man, because the, when on that interview we, where we chatted after the shock of the Chelsea thing, you said to me, one of the things I'm going to do now is I'm going to go back to my country and try to do for football in Italy what Andy Gray has done for football via Sky yeah. in Britain... And you said to me, I don't want it always to be the case that if a team wins 4-1, you're only looking at the one, or you're obsessed with the referee and is he on one side or the other side. You said, I want to bring out the beauty, the intelligence, the strategy of football, and try and change a country's perception of football. Exactly. I want to believe that we've done that in the last 13 years, to make football a better game. This was our mission. There isn't a better mission. (laughs) Thank you. Pleasure. My pleasure. Um... On behalf of everybody who's listened, you've got massive respect from us and you've given us huge enjoyment. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to share because nowadays my wife doesn't want to listen to me when I <laughs> offer to speak about my listen, experience. You have all of our phone numbers. Whenever you just need to talk, <laughs> we, can be we're there for you. Okay, no, yeah. we're there for and you. And bore you with my nah, stories. Okay. Never. <laughs>
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.